Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. So, as, as Jamie was praying over the kids, she made a comment about how her desire isn't just that we, in these times, that we just do something, but that there's really an encounter, something that's taking place that goes beyond just a remembrance. And today we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, with regard to uh, Sukkot and why it is that we celebrate Sukkot, because there, there's multiple reasons, just as we've looked through all of the appointed times, and we've talked about how God established them from the beginning as part of his plan of restoration and how he moves in each one of the appointed times for specific purposes. In, in the spring, at the time of Pesach, God moves with redemption. And then he goes forward to Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and it's a time of covenantal increase and bridal themes. And then we come to this time of Sukkot, and it's a time of God's dwelling presence and a time of the ingathering of both the heart of the harvest, okay? The harvest meaning multiple things, both of the produce of the land and it's also the harvest of souls. And so, so today we're going to look at our overview. This, the Torah portion this week is from Leviticus 23. We're not going to read all of Leviticus 23, but actually I already kind of did a little overview of it, but it opens up and says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And then throughout Leviticus 23, it goes through the weekly Sabbath, goes through the week of unleavened bread, Shavuot, Yom Truah, Yom Kippur, and then finally with Sukkot here in Leviticus 23, verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying on the 15th day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. So at this point, Leviticus 23 opened up with these are the appointed times. It went through with the listing and the offerings that are brought for each one. And then it, here in verse 37, it says, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord. And so you'd think, okay, we're done. That Those are the two bookends of the passage. But that's not the end of the passage. Because we go to verse 39. And verse 39 in this translation leaves out a word that is noted by the sages. This says on the 15th day of the seventh month, but there's another word in the Hebrew, which is but. 
And it's not just, uh, it's more of a, a hard stop as opposed to the general conjunction that often goes between passages. In this case, it's now saying, but Sukkot is different. There's something additional we need to take, pay attention to with Sukkot. It says, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And on the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. Now, this is just a repetition of what we read a few verses ago, right? But it's being highlighted separately because of what it's about to say here in verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So two things were added in this passage, aside from what we had read earlier. And it, one was to take the three species of tree along with the fruit and rejoice before the Lord. And the other is dwelling in booths. Now dwelling in booths here in scripture is clearly noted to be a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt when God caused the children of Israel to dwell in Sukkot. But then the Lulav and the Etrog, it doesn't say the reason why you're to take these species and uh, rejoice before the Lord. And so it makes you wonder what it's doing there. And the, the thing is, it's not just about remembering the Exodus. The appointed times are not just about remembrance. They're about things to come as well. It's, it's, it's what Jamie said. It's, it's an encounter that we're having with the Lord and an expectation and a hope of something that God is going to do and bring about in the future. And that's really what the Etrog and Lulav are pointing to. But to understand what they're pointing to, we have to dig a little bit deeper. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later on. But ultimately, it's pointing towards the Messianic era. And all these appointed times, going from redemption to covenantal increase, leading into Sukkot, everything is building up to really a culmination, a climax, which is Sukkot. It's the next step in the redemption where God has redeemed the people for himself, taken to them in covenant, and then bringing them to a place of his dwelling with them. And really that's coming to a place of God's dwelling with man is the guarantee that our joy will be complete because in the presence of God is fullness of joy. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 16, when the scripture is speaking of the Feast of Sukkot, it says, For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place your Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the works of your, your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. You will be completely joyous, because he will have fulfilled all that he said that he would do. Now, at this time of Sukkot, there are a number of things that we do throughout the week. Of course, we have a sukkah for dwelling in. 
We have, we have the lulav that we wave before the Lord. At the temple, 70 bulls would be offered during the course of the seven days. You start with 13 bulls on the first day, 12 the second, working your way all the way down to seven on the seventh day. And those offerings total up to 70 bulls, which the sages say represent all 70 nations of the earth, such that the, at the time of Sukkot, the offerings are intercession for all the nations, looking forward to the ingathering of the nations that will come in the Messianic era. And then additionally, there's a tradition of inviting the Ushpizin into the sukkah on each night of Sukkot. And the Ushpizin, you might say, you don't know what that is, right? It's not as commonly known, but they are the guests at the sukkah. And we'll probably talk a little bit about, about those. It's a, it's a mystical thing that gives allusions to really the establishment of God's kingdom, his, uh, his Malchut. And then we talk about the clouds of glory during Sukkot, the clouds of glory being God's divine presence in which we sit. And then each day at the temple, there would be a water drawing ceremony where water is taken from the pool of Siloam, taken up and poured out at the, at the altar. And that culminates in Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation on the seventh day. We'll talk more about that next week. And then as we've read here, there's the eighth day, Shemini Yatzeret, which, strangely enough, is actually not a part of Sukkot, but is always talked about in connection with Sukkot, because Sukkot is seven days, and then you rest on the eighth day. So it's its own unique holiday. And then within all of these observances, there's a picture of the coming messianic era and the world to come. It's looking at new beginnings. And really, the new beginnings that are, that are talked about with Sukkot didn't just begin at the time of God telling Moses about this and having him write it in Leviticus 23, because Sukkot actually shows up in the Bible back in Genesis. At the time when Jacob returned from living with Laban, when he's now coming back to the land, he's returning from exile, the scriptures say that in Genesis 33:17, it says, Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. He made Sukkot for his livestock, and therefore the name of the place is called Sukkot. So that was the first place upon his return to the land. And then interestingly, when God takes the children of Israel out of Egypt, the first place he takes them to on their journey is Sukkot. In Exodus 12:37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So now this first stage of being brought out of exile is again coming to Sukkot. So if we take a step back and look at this on the grand scale of things, we say it's happening here on the minor levels with Jacob. It's happening with the children of Israel. It will happen again at the time of God's dwelling with man. And so we have the next stage, messianic era, the ingathering from the four corners of the earth of all the children of Israel back to the land where they can dwell in the presence of Yeshua, looking forward to the coming of the Father at the end of the age and the world to come. 
And so when, we look, when we're looking at Sukkot, we're looking at a return from exile to a place of communion and fellowship with God. It's really, it's really a celebration of what's to come and a remembrance of what has been, just as each of the holidays are. The coming redemption, the coming salvation of the Lord. And in Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6, the scripture says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all, for over all the glory, there will be a canopy, there will be a sukkah. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So God's saying that he is going to cover over the people to be their shelter, to be the one who gives them security. And if we look at Sukkot, it's a seven-day celebration, remembering the exodus from Egypt. Passover is a seven-day celebration, remembering the exodus from Egypt. They're exactly six months apart. But the observance, the way in which it's remembered is different. In Passover, there's the week of unleavened bread, eating the matzah to remember that God brought the children of Israel out in haste. And it also gives an allusion to the manna. So God was the provider and sustainer of the children of Israel in their journeys. And then in Sukkot, we remember the shelter and the security God gave through all those journeys. And so God gives both provision, he gives food, and he gives shelter to his children along all their journeys until he brings them to the promised destination. Now, when we're talking about when we're talking about the etrog and the lulav, being the four species, there's many traditions you may have heard about what the symbolism is around it. Um, there's there's some that say the the fruit has a good taste and a good fragrance, and it represents a person who has both wisdom and good deeds. The myrtle has a good fragrance, but you can't eat it. So it represents a person who has good deeds but lacks wisdom. The lulav, the date palm, is edible but has no smell. And this represents a person with wisdom but without good deeds. And then the willow has neither taste nor smell, and it represents a person with neither good deeds nor Torah learning. But then it talks about the gathering of them all together that all can come before the Lord and worship. And there's some other things around it with saying, okay, how do we understand what the meaning of the lulav is? Like the etrog can represent the heart, which is why you hold it in the left hand when you say the blessings and wave before the Lord, because then it'll be as close to your heart as possible. 
The palm represents the spine, the myrtle, the eyes, and the willow, the lips. Okay, so we have what our eyes see, what our lips proclaim, our heart to follow the Lord, and the spine, which brings it all together in right alignment. Several different things, but the scholars of Aleph Beta uh, have pointed out that the scriptures give us another picture, a deeper understanding of what the Etrog and Lulav are really pointing to. And if we take a look at Leviticus 23.40 and look at how the command is given on taking these four species, we can begin to see a hidden picture. So in verse 40 it says, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So the first thing is it says you shall take the fruit of the tree. And then the next thing what it says takes the branches of palm trees. The palm is a, is a large leaf. Okay, so you go from fruit to a leaf. And the next thing it says, bows of leafy trees. It's actually, I don't know why they chose to use the same the bows here, but it's, it says twigs. It's like branches of a leafy tree, speaking of the myrtle. And then lastly, it comes to willows of the brook. All right, so it starts with the fruit, moves to the leaf, which is right next to the fruit, moves to the twigs or branches, which the leaves are attached to, and then it comes to the willow, which has its roots in the water. So it's going... So we're working in reverse from the fruit all the way back to the waters which caused the tree to grow and to branch out for the leaves to come out and produce fruit. So it's working back to the source of water. Now, why is water so significant? Well, in some ways, it's what we talked about last week where Yeshua says, come to the waters and drink. Actually, it's in the book of Isaiah where it says, all who are thirsty come to the waters and drink. The water being the Torah. And then also the water being that which flowed from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, in Genesis 2 verse 10, the scripture says that the water came forth from the garden, from the temple. Actually, you can't say that it came from the temple. That's by illusion. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. But the garden itself opened to the east and was a picture of the temple. So water flowed from the garden. And then in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2, the scripture says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And in Ezekiel 47, he tells the same story about the water that comes forth from the temple and how it proceeds out from the temple, starting out ankle deep, coming to knee high, waist high, and became a river. And along the river, there were trees that were growing, and their leaves were for the healing of the nations. It's all looking forward 
to this coming messianic era and this time of restoration of all things. So when we take up the lulav, when we take up the, the four species and we wave them before the Lord, we're prophetically looking forward to the messianic era in this time when the water will flow from the temple and bring healing to all the nations. And we're declaring God's kingship in every direction, right? Because we wave the lulav to the, to the east, south, west, north, and we wave it up and down such that we're declaring that God's kingdom will cover the entire earth, that which is in every direction, that which is above and that which is below. So it's really a beautiful picture. So when you pick up your lulav and you think, what is it that I'm doing? You're declaring God's kingship and prophetically declaring the coming kingdom. Now each night too, we enter into the sukkah and we bless God for how he has told us to dwell in the sukkah. The sukkah that we put up is just a temporary structure. It's got three sides. It has up on top of it what's called skach, which is that which is taken from the earth and lifted up and put over the top of the sukkah, such that we're taking that of the earth and lifting it up into the sky, into heaven, where it can meet with the clouds of glory that are descending from the Father. So you have heaven and earth coming together. So when we sit in the sukkah, it's not just sitting in a structure to resemble the booths that people lived in while they wandered in the wilderness. It's to remember that as they wandered in the wilderness, they had this covering of their shelter, but ultimately they had their covering, which was God himself who in the cloud of glory overshadowed them, protecting them through the, through the wilderness. He was their cloud by day and their fire by night, and he caused them to dwell in his glory cloud. So when we come to Sukkot and we sit in our sukkah, we're remembering how God overshadows us, how he's our shelter, he's our strength, and this is our time of communion with him, not just in today, but looking forward to the time when God will dwell with man. So there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of hope that's built into the season of Sukkot. And I mentioned how each night we, we invite guests into our sukkahs. One, it's good to invite friends and family into the sukkah to share a meal with you and to, to have this time of communion but there's also these mystical guests that we talk about. The mystical guests are said to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Joseph, and David. So you have one for each night of Sukkot. And it may sound a little bit strange, and of course it is just tradition, but each part of it is intended to look at the establishment of God's kingdom, both in us and on the earth. On the first day with Abraham, it's looking at the attribute of chesed, benevolence, loving kindness, covenant faithfulness. So this is much like the same pattern that we see during the counting of the Omer as we're building up to Shavuot. Starting with Abraham, you have chesed. Then the second night, you have Isaac, who represents strength. The third night is Jacob, beauty and truth. 
The fourth night is Moses, which is victory and endurance. Fifth night is Aaron, splendor and humility. The sixth day is Joseph, which represents the foundation and connection. And that finally culminates in the seventh day with the kingdom. King David and God's kingdom, sovereignty, and leadership. And so there's a building up. Now, interestingly, within this, when we come to the sixth day and we talk about the foundation with Joseph, and then the next day we're talking about kingdom with David, you have a picture of the Messiah son of Joseph and the Messiah son of David. The Messiah son of Joseph came and laid a foundation for the kingdom of God on the earth by offering himself up, laying himself down as that foundation stone and the one who is the cornerstone, which then leads to his return and establishment of his kingdom, just as the Messiah, son of David, will rule and reign forever. And, you know, within, these, within the aspect of saying we're inviting these guests in, it's not entirely without reference in the New Testament. Because Yeshua speaks of the coming day, looking at the Messianic era as a time of sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Matthew eight eleven, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Because there's a meal, the meal of Messiah, wherein which those who have died but, are, but yet live will come together and celebrate with the Messiah in his kingdom. So even as we have our dinners in the sukkah each night and welcome our guests, even that is a proclaiming of the marriage supper, supper of the Lamb and looking forward to it. And with all the talk of God's dwelling presence and the clouds of glory that we're looking forward to, we have a picture of this as well back in the time of the dedication of the first temple. When Solomon was making a place for God to dwell. Now, of course, in the wilderness, there was the tabernacle that traveled and moved along with the children of Israel and God's presence was there. But King David saw that there was an uh, imbalance and that he had a house, a permanent house, but God did not. And he took issue with the idea of him having a better place. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, the scripture says, When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So it was in David's heart to make a place that was beautiful for God. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 14, David was told, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you one who will come from your body, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son to me a son. Now we know that the scripture is speaking of Solomon who would come up and would build the temple in David's place. But also this is a prophetic calling of the one who would come forward as a son of David, who would establish a house for God's name and the throne of the kingdom forever, who would be Yeshua. And that God would be the father to him and Yeshua would be the son. So going forward from here, we come to the place where Solomon actually does build a temple unto God. In 1 Kings 8, verses 2 through 21, the tabernacle was inaugurated at the time of Sukkot. All the men of Israel assembled the King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So here we see all woven within the story of the creation of this tabernacle, of the temple in Jerusalem. The fulfillment of the promise 
that God made when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, a a promise that he made to David that he has now brought about fulfilling through his son. And as we sang earlier, even about the faithfulness of God and how he keeps his promises, so we see it in each step of the restoration that has taken place. All the while along the way, from the time that Adam and Eve sinned until even today, God's presence has been ever increasing with the building of the tabernacle, with the construction of the temple, with the sending of the Holy Spirit into the temple of believers. God's kingdom has been ever increasing on the earth and it's building up to an ultimate climax building up to a time when just as Solomon came as the seed of David to establish the temple, Yeshua too will come and make a place for God to dwell here on the earth when he restores the children of Israel and when he restores the temple service. Just as it was in David's heart to make a place for God to dwell, it's in Yeshua's heart to make a place for God to dwell that would be glorious. He makes that within us, and he makes it a reality on the earth so that we can have the full revelation of God and that our joy may be complete. In Zechariah chapter 14, which is our Heftarah for this week, it's speaking of the coming redemption in the Messianic era, and it too says that on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall, constitute in, in, it shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So all throughout the prophets, there's a looking forward to these waters that are going to flow from the temple that will bring healing to all the nations, and the kingship will be established under God's chosen Son. And we will see the connection of heaven and earth all throughout the messianic reign as Yeshua prepares the way for the ultimate redemption where death is destroyed and God's presence is on the earth. And what we're walking through today in the celebration of Sukkot is really just a dress rehearsal for that. Now, a dress rehearsal, we might think of it as being just a shadow of what's to come. And in a way, it is just a shadow of what's to come. But in this, it's not just an act. It's an experience with our Lord. Because he said, this is a time that I've created to meet with you. It's a time that I've set where we can celebrate the coming harvest, the harvest of the people, the harvest of the nations, where all the nations have one shepherd who is over them, and where the glory of God will be in their midst. And he says, right now, you don't have the fullness of it, but there is a portion of it for the taking. Now, will you come and will you sit sit down in my presence in the sukkah? Will you come and bask in my glory cloud? Realizing that when you've moved across that threshold into the sukkah, you've entered into a space 
that is almost without time. You know, just as Moses went up on the mountain and he communed with God while he was receiving the Torah, he fasted for 40 days and nights. He didn't eat or drink. You cannot live through that in the physical. He was in a place that was outside of time as we know it. So even when we come into the sukkah, there's an element of that because we're in God's presence. Now, don't use that as an excuse for your boss as to why you were late, because you probably won't get it. But you're entering into a different time and being mindful of that and saying, God, I'm coming into presence, into your presence to commune with you. Making space for God to move. That's what we're looking for in this time. Of course, looking for his kingdom to come on earth. But right now, for his kingdom to come in us. That this loving kindness, this strength, would be established in us. And each night, asking for God to move and to transform us. So that heaven can be manifest in us all the more as we seek the coming of Yeshua on this journey. Now, when you think about God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, the first place he took them was Sukkot, a place looking of new beginnings, of looking forward to a dwelling place. And there were many journeys along the way, but they would all culminate in the completion of the promise and the fullness of joy. I'm thinking about the time the scriptures say that when, when the farmer brings his produce before the Lord and he testifies that he's standing before God today, just as God had promised. And he's blessing God for the produce. His very standing there is testimony that God is faithful to keep his promises. Because if it weren't for God, the farmer would have never arrived in the land of Israel and could have never had the harvest that came forward if it wasn't for God's security, his sustenance, and his provision, for God being the shelter over them all. And so as we celebrate Sukkot this week, we're to remember the shelter, the tabernacle of God that is over us, and that it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And in that, we can find joy and give him glory. All the while looking forward to the completion of his promises and the completion of our joy. Amen. Does anybody have anything that you would like to share? Just point more to that, that jealous heart, that heart that the Lord has that desires us. It clearly directs us to show him just as important as he is to us as we are to him, mm-hmm. asking for us to make the place, the place, the place. And I don't know, there's just so much evidence. Even your preaching directed me to reinforce that thought. It's just very clear. He wants us. He wants us to make a place for him. And there's not really another way. Yeah, and it really does go back to the story of David having a heart to make a place for God. Yeshua has a heart to make a place for God. He's put it within us, the ability to have that heart. And it's for us to take hold of that heart 
and make the place for God's dwelling. Amen. Praise God. Let's, let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your jealousy for us, Lord. You're zealous for your people, jealous for your people that we would commune with you. Lord, that you would be our heart's desire. We thank you, Lord, that you treasure us, that you rejoice over us, that you delight in us. Lord, may we delight in you and our everything. May we seek you. May we, may we make room for you. And Lord, as we celebrate this season of your dwelling presence and the season of our joy, Lord, may your presence be manifest to us as we seek your face. And may our joy be made complete. Lord, we, we ask for the coming of Yeshua. We ask you to send your son to bring restoration, to bring about the messianic era. Lord, you are faithful to fulfill your promises. And your word is true. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.